Hello and thanks for tuning in for this edition of Stratford Talks, the monthly podcast where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at some of our analysis and global affairs. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Marla Moore. And we're your hosts for this show. Our show today is divided into two segments. First, Europe analyst Adriano Bassani will join us with perspectives on Greece and why it's not just the economy, but Greece's geography that poses a threat to Europe. Then we'll be chatting with science and technology analyst Rebecca Keller about new technologies that eventually could have a big impact on farming. And as a reminder, if you'd like to subscribe to our free podcast feed, you can find us under Stratfor on the iTunes store. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at Stratfor, or connect with us on Facebook as well. Greece and the state of its economy is a topic that's never far from the headlines these days. But beyond the debts and the bailout talks, there are larger issues linked to Greece's geography that have the potential to affect Europe for years to come. And bringing us some first-hand perspective on the issue is our Europe analyst, Adriano Bassoni. Now, he's recently been in Athens, actually at the heart of the matter, but he's now on the line from Frankfurt, Germany, which is, of course, the other main actor in the Greek debt crisis. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. One of the things that we pay close attention to at Stratfor is the significant impact that geography can have on the size and shape of a country's economy. The crisis in Greece has been a pretty remarkable example of that point in relation to Germany and other states in Northern Europe. So, Adriano, I wanted to ask, you know, if for our listeners, you might just start by sketching out just what that geography entails for Greece and how it's contributed to the financial weakness we see today. Well, we cannot think of Greece without thinking its geography. And when we look at Greece's geography, one of the first things that we see is fragmentation. Greece is located in the southernmost part of the Balkan Peninsula, which is an extremely mountainous peninsula. And when you when you visit Greece, I actually traveled from Thessaloniki to Athens by train last year, and you see a very uh, a very narrow coastline which suddenly becomes uh, a very mountainous geography. And that's, that's the first thing that you see. And the second thing that you see is obviously islands, thousands of, of islands in Greece. As a result, Greece is largely insulated from mainland Europe, which has been for the Greek history both a blessing and a curse. A blessing in the sense that the Greek territories were traditionally easy to defend while their proximity to the sea allowed them to communicate with each other and, and, and to trade. But uh, this geography also produced fragmentation, as I was saying before. If we, for instance, uh, think about ancient Greece, classic Greece, we, we clearly see a landscape of city-states instead of an empire like, like, like the Roman Empire. So there was a Greek civilization, but we had Athens, we had Sparta, we had all those city-states that shared some common characteristics but, but did not really constitute a proper empire. And the curse is also in the sense that land-based transport routes to mainland Europe were, were very difficult traditionally, so Greece did not have many opportunities to trade with, with, with regions to its north, while at the same time this, this mountainous and jagged coastline leave little room for fertile valleys and plains which difficult large-scale agriculture. So if we combine this lack of large areas of arable land and poor land transportation conditions, then we understand why Greece has traditionally struggled 
for capital formation and, and, and to build a modern integrated economy with a central government. And still to these days, we see these factors still factoring in when we, when we take a look at the state of the Greek economy. She's kind of ironic in some ways when you think about it, because as you mentioned, Greece is the originator for a lot of the, the, the common you know, concepts and institutions that we take for granted today. You know, when you think about political discourse, the evolution of democracy, and a lot of the, the Greek philosophy that actually informs to this day the way we think. How do you think that historical background has actually affected the Greek thinking today? And do you think it's maybe reinforced or even harmed the institutions that exist in Greece itself? And that's clearly something we think about here, the strength of a, a country's institutions. Yeah, that's a key question because... Even if the grey economy or the off-the-books economy is very hard to measure and there are very different scales and studies trying to assess the size of the Greek uh, grey economy, it's generally believed that about a quarter of all economic activity in Greece is done off the books. And this is linked to historical reasons because in Greece there's a general mistrust of authority which is the result of a very localist sentiment which is related to the fragmented geography that I was mentioning before and centuries of invasions and foreign control. We need to keep in mind that Greece has traditionally been invaded by foreign powers from the Roman Empire to the Ottoman Empire. And uh, if we take a look at Greece's modern history, the first Greek king was actually... Uh, appointed in London by the United Kingdom, France, and Russia, and it was a, a Bavarian prince who had never been to Greece before. So this is just a little anecdote, but it gives you a sense of this permanent dependence on foreign powers and this permanent mistrust of authority that is a very, a very uh, common in Greece. But in more modern times, we also see this perception of political corruption, low satisfaction with, with public services. So if you talk to the Greek people these days, you see strong horizontal loyalty, very, very strong community links, but at the same time, lack of vertical trust in the sense of trust of the authorities and trust that the money you pay for taxes is going to be used in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a useful way. And if we if we take a look at the grey economy, it's interesting because in times of crisis, it, it kind of operates as a safety net uh, because people don't pay taxes to a certain extent that they have some extra money to, to cope with the crisis. But at the same time, it, it's obvious that the grey economy undermines state growth, it undermines uh, government revenue, it's uh, difficult to, to, to consolidate a modern economy, and there are anecdotes showing that, for instance, small companies often avoid taking out loans from banks because that involves becoming more transparent and they don't want to. So you understand why the grey economy may be tolerated in times of crisis, but in the long run, it definitely hurts the developing of, of, a, of a modern, working, sustainable economy. Well, it's interesting because in places like America and other countries in Europe, we're moving more towards a, a cashless society. People are far more reliant on their, their cards and debit cards and visa cards. Whereas in Greece, you know, we kind of joke about people putting their cash money in the mattress, but that's literally happening, isn't it? It is literally happening, yes. And we have seen a, an interesting dynamic, according to which in, 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 the, in, the, in the past six months, 
the European Central Bank was pumping liquidity into Greek banks, but Greek savers were actually withdrawing that money from their bank accounts because they just don't trust their banks. They just don't trust their government. So for, for many Greek citizens, having their money at home is the only way that could protect them should there be uh, a deeper crisis or a banking crisis of even a nationalization of the Greek banking sector. So it's a uh, a self-protecting act, uh, activity or, or, or reaction to the crisis, I would say. I'd like to, uh, to return to something that you mentioned just a bit ago in terms of both geography and the gray economy, because if you consider that geography is comprised of thousands of islands, which I would imagine border security and maritime security in that geography is rather difficult for a country like Greece to enforce, um, especially given their financial duress. That really connects to another one of these really big issues that we've been seeing playing out in the news over the past several months, which has to do with human trafficking and the flow of migrants coming north out of places like Libya through weak countries like Greece and, and on further into northern Europe. And this has rather large implications for countries at every point in that supply chain, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And as, as you were saying, because of its location in the, in the Mediterranean, Greece has traditionally been an attractive entry point into the European Union and we have to keep in mind that once you enter the countries that belong into the Schengen Agreement, then you are allowed to move freely without anybody checking your passport. So this has been the case for a very long time, but in recent times we have a combination of two factors. On the one hand, we have crises in Syria, Iraq and other places in the Middle East while we also have instability in Northern Africa, most, most notably in, in Libya. So we have seen in the past three, four years a notable increase in the arrival of asylum seekers and, and, and people looking to, to apply for, for the refugee status in, in Europe. And Greece, because of its location, has been an entry point. The thing is, Greece, Greece is facing its own crisis, which means that the conditions and the resources that Greece has to cope with this crisis are very limited. And we see the case of people who maybe pay between $2,000 and $6,000 to be smuggled into Greece, and ideally they would like to go somewhere else in the European Union, like Germany or, or Austria or, or Sweden or any of the more developed economies, but they simply run out of money and end up being de facto immigrants in Greece. And there are obviously no jobs in Greece, and people are very scared, and people are very fearful of the future, and that partially explains the electoral growth of neo-Nazi parties such as Golden Dawn in Greece, which is using the immigrant crisis for political reasons, but also, to a certain extent, moderate parties have been using the, the threat of, of immigration for political reasons. So it's a very, very fragile combination that we see in Greece these days, which is a country that is receiving massive amounts of immigrants while at the same time going through a very deep economic crisis. So Adriana, as you mentioned, the, the immigration crisis is something that not only affects Greece, but it affects Europe as a whole. And clearly, as an entity, Europe is, is straining under the pressure. And it's very hard to maintain this sense of solidarity when you have different countries with diverse opinions over how best to tackle the immigration crisis. 
Clearly, Italy has contributed a maritime component to try and interdict immigration on the high seas, but that's only a part of the problem. How do you think other countries in Europe are actually trying to tackle this crisis? And what strain is it actually putting on the European entity itself, Adriano? So Greece is not the only country that is dealing with immigration pressure these days. As you were saying, Italy, Malta and other Mediterranean countries are seeing a massive increase in the arrival of immigrants by the sea. And they are pushing the European Union for a comprehensive solution or a comprehensive approach to the immigration crisis. There's a key issue here, which is the way the immigration system works in Europe. According to existing regulations, the country of first entry of the asylum seeker is supposed to take care of the asylum application. That puts a huge strain on, on countries in the European Union's external borders. And that's why Italy, Greece and others have been pushing for more solidarity in the distribution of immigrants. And we've seen in the past few weeks how the European Commission tried to impose mandatory quotas of immigrants in Europe. And the idea simply failed for the simple reason that countries do not want to be given a mandatory quota. And all the EU could do was to decide voluntary targets. And that's one of the many issues these days that are showing the lack of solidarity and comprehensive approach to its crisis in Europe. And as you were saying, this is putting a significant strain on the Schengen Agreement. We have seen, for instance, countries such as Austria or France accusing Italy of not fingerprinting all the immigrants that arrived in the country so they can move somewhere else in Europe. We have seen the Hungarian government uh, announcing that it would build a fence in the border with Serbia to prevent the arrival of immigrants from the Balkans. We have seen constant conflicts between the British and the French government because of immigrants trying to cross the English Channel through northern France. So this is probably the next battlefield for Europe, which is the battlefield the, over the future of Schengen, the future of the free movement of people in Europe, the future of uh, the political integration of the European Union. And uh, to a certain extent, this is linked to the, to the discussion between Northern Europe and Southern Europe ab about what the future of the European Union will look like. If so much pressure is being put on the Schengen Agreement itself, what would the future look like if, you know, we've had lots of discussions in the past about, you know, the option of a Grexit? What does it mean for someone to leave the Eurozone? No one knows the answer to that. What does it look like for someone to have their uh, membership in the Schengen Agreement revoked? What would happen then? Well, you are absolutely right. This, Greece is a particularly important country because the EU simply cannot afford to have a black hole in its southeastern border. If you take a look at the map, you will see instability in Syria, instability in Libya, political problems in Turkey, and Greece is just in the middle of everything. And, it, and it's and it's the southeastern border of the European Union. So the EU cannot afford to have fragile and politically uh, volatile country in its southeastern border because, as we were saying, Greece is an important entry point for people and for goods into the European continent. So we have seen in, in, in the past few weeks American pressure on the EU to find a solution for the crisis 
in Europe. We have seen French pressure over Germany to uh, reach accommodation with the Greek government. We have seen internal disputes within Germany about what to do next with Europe. Uh, the German government is somewhat divided. We have Finance Minister Schäuble saying that the Eurozone is as strong as the weakest of its members and that a Grexit, even if it's a temporary one, should be allowed for the rest of the currency union to be stronger. And we have Chancellor Merkel defending a more geopolitical approach to the negotiations with Greece, saying that the EU and NATO cannot afford to lose Greece. So definitely uh, Greece is much more important for geopolitical reasons than it would look if you just take a look at the size of the Greek economy when compared to the, to the overall size of the Eurozone. So Greece is far more important than uh, what it would look like at first sight if you just consider the size of its economy. Very much so. And it, it kind of makes you wonder just how long Brussels can go for fighting these fires that constantly seem to be popping up all over Europe. And it's as soon as they, they, they tamp one out, another one will pop up elsewhere, either economically or to do with immigration or, or collective defence or anything like that. I mean, Stratford, we've always taken this somewhat slightly pessimistic view of Europe as an entity, saying that actually fracturing is to some extent inevitable. Do you think we're beginning to see these fractures deepen to, to the point where Europe perhaps will not be able to recover in the future. Yeah, after the Greek government reached an agreement with uh, its creditors, we saw interesting developments in France and in Italy. Both Paris and Rome proposed in the past few days to deepen the process of continental integration, to create a government for the Eurozone, to create a parliament for the Eurozone. And it's, it's very interesting because we see the German government and other northern European countries, such as the Netherlands or, or Finland, supporting the process of continental integration, but for very different reasons. The German government reacted to the proposals by the French and the Italians by saying that there should be uh, a deeper political union, but only if there was a strict enforcement of rules, if there was finance minister for the Eurozone making sure that uh, the targets on deficit and debts are respected, which is a very ironic development because we see Germany as the largest economy in Europe, as a country that for historical and geopolitical reasons is interested in keeping the Eurozone together, in preserving its alliance with the French. But at the same time, we see that Germany is a na nation state and like any other nation state on earth wants to protect its own national wealth. So the German government wants to preserve its alliance with Europe, but at the same time it wants to prevent the Eurozone from becoming a transfer union in which wealthy countries in the north permanently subsidize poorer countries in the south. So that will continue to be probably the most important force leading to fragmentation in Europe. And also, Germany is very, very keen to make sure it doesn't come across as being too overbearing, because that was always a key thing about the, the German identity right now, is actually being this, this key part of Europe, strong economically, but not actually being a, a really controlling force. And it's put Angela Merkel in a really difficult position, because actually we've seen Germany start to be increasingly assertive 
when it comes to Greece, but it started to make other European countries feel a little bit uncomfortable. Given that Germany does have the past that it has and all of its neighbors are fully aware of it and, and emotionally connected to that, to see Germany in a position where it's trying to cajole someone into doing um, what it needs them to do is is been rather interesting. And I think that we're moving well past the cajoling phase at this point. And, and Greece even tried to play that card with the war reparations, where they figured they could possibly get some money from Germany from World War II. I would say that probably the most interesting part of the Greek negotiations was that for a minute, the German government uh, seemed to suggest that Greece should be temporarily suspended from the Eurozone. And we can spend days and weeks debating on whether or not uh, that was just a negotiation tactic from by the by the German government, but it's very interesting that for the first time in six decades of European integration, we had Germany, the core country in Europe, suggesting that some parts, some aspects of the process of continental integration could be reversed. And it's interesting because uh, one of the key mantras <laughs> that we see coming from European officials is that Eurozone integration and continental integration is irreversible. And having the German government saying that at least some aspects and at least some countries could see actually a reversal of the, of the process of continental integration was very, very notable. And I think this is making many governments uh, scared and, 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 and worried about what the future of Europe will look like. Looking out at Europe over the next handful of months, what do you see as the next key decision points, not only for Greece, but for the Eurozone as a whole? We are about to enter a very interesting electoral process. The two largest economies in Europe, France and Germany, will hold elections at the same time almost. The Germans have general elections in 2017 and so do the French. The French elections will be particularly interesting because if uh, opinion polls continue to be the way they are now, the presidency will be disputed between a center-right and mildly Eurosceptic party and a nationalist, totally Eurosceptic party. So we may see for the first time in a long time, a French government that wants to actually reverse the process of continental integration. And at the same time, we will see the conservatives in Germany pushing for stricter controls of, of fiscal targets in the, in the Eurozone. We, we saw the conservatives in, in Angela Merkel's party pushing to keep a very hard stance on Greece, and we see that we see the German conservatives voicing their, voicing their concerns about the process of continental integration. So we will see a very, very interesting dynamic in less than two years. And besides from that, we continue to see the European Union breaking on its extremes. A Brexit is not completely. Uh, out of the question, the Greek economy will remain to be in a very fragile situation. The Greek debt will continue to be unsustainable. There will continue to be room for anti-EU parties emerging and campaigning on the promise to leave the Eurozone. And we obviously have the British uh, referendum on EU membership, which could happen between 2016 and 2017. So I would say that just 
like we began this conversation by using the word fragmentation to describe the, the Greek geography, I think that fragmentation will continue to be a key concept to understand the future of, of the European Union. It, it just sounds like there's a, we don't see light at the end of the tunnel yet for Europe for quite some time to come. Yes, I agree. And if we take a look at the, uh, the big picture and we use geography to understand the political processes in Europe, we will see that the European Union was built on the promise of peace and prosperity in Europe. And fortunately, it still delivers on the former, but its achievements on the latter are a matter of, of discussion these days and are being questioned. And the European Union tried to overcome history and geography, and it tried to uh, weaken the nation states. But we see that in times of economic crisis, the nation state reemerges, and that will probably continue to be the case for, for years to come. Completely. And to some extent, that's always been the challenge for Europe, which is how do you have strong collective bonds when at the heart of all your members, you have this, this very powerful national identity? Adriano, thank you so much for the time and, and such a fascinating discussion. We appreciate it. Thank you. Back in May, the Obama administration announced a plan to combat massive die-offs of honeybees, which many fear could eventually harm the ecosystem and even food supplies. Part of the government's strategy included making improvements to some 7 million acres of land around the Interstate 35 corridor in hopes of making it a natural bee habitat. But planting more flowers and reducing the use of pesticides is only one approach to solving the problem. Stratfor science and technology analyst Rebecca Keller says robotics researchers are looking for solutions from another angle altogether. Yeah, so the bee problem isn't new at all. Uh, in fact, the last five years have all seen significant die-offs in the honeybee population. Um, they're not quite positive of the exact cause. I think there's a number of contributing factors, including pesticides, climate and, and other kinds of pollution. Um, but the cause doesn't really matter. We need to fix the problem. And, and robotic bees are actually on the horizon. They're, they're still probably a decade off before they can be really used. But you would use literally robotic bees and they can be used to pollinate, uh, automatically pollinate crops, so replacing what the honeybee's current role is. But that's just a small part and, and in a more distant future part of a greater movement uh, in automated or precision agriculture that we're, that we're looking at to do more with less. With fewer resources and more people, we're going to have to increase the efficiency of our agriculture, not just here in the United States, but around the world. So what sort of things are we seeing at the moment then in terms of automation and agriculture? So you've got things as simple as using conveyor belts where you wouldn't have had those before. The dairy industry uses automatic milking already. But something that's really exciting that's probably going to take off here in the United States fairly soon are using drones uh, in agriculture. So you think of drones with the military, but they really could have significant economic impacts in agriculture. Just, just the little small drones that you see, you know, the consumer products can be used to gather just a ton of data that the farmers then can then use and synthesize to increase the yields, decrease the time they spend planting their crops, more efficiently apply fertilizers or water, just get more out of less from their crops. And uh, the FAA just recently 
began allowing companies to fly these drones commercially on a case-by-case basis, so there'll be an application process. But before this year, the the drone companies had to work with smaller farms on a pilot project and couldn't charge yet. But now that that can become an industry, there's the potential for this to really take off. We're seeing really a confluence of factors come together, aren't we? The proliferation of drone technology, the actual the price point coming down, legal restrictions being relaxed enough to actually be able to use this in wide scale. So it's really a, a good time for drone technology to burgeon. Absolutely. And it's, you're coming up on a, a time where it's going to become more and more necessary to increase this infi- efficiency in agriculture mm-hmm. as we see greater water scarcity throughout the globe, as we see increasing populations, increasing demand for, for imports of agricultural goods. So, so yeah, it's, it's all converging um, at the same time. Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, just as a personal note, I come from a family where, um, you know, my grandfather was a rancher for his entire life. And yeah, I think about the amount of time he spent driving. And if he had a drone <laughs> to be able to assess situations, um, you know, what a change in his lifestyle that would have made to have the technology bring him the information. It also is really important, I think, too, because absent migrant labor, farm workers are a declining segment of the American labor pool and have been for decades now. Yeah, and it's not – they're a declining pool of, of, of non-migrant workers. And then you've also got Mexico's shift in their uh, demographics, which is increasing the cost point, which is a horrible way to say it, but increasing the, the wage rate of even the migrant workers. And so you're trying to minimize your costs, so you're going to try to decrease workers at some point. And that's, again, where automated, automation comes in. Like it, it all comes back to doing more with less. So to use the adage that every rose has a thorn, how is this going to affect rural communities where actually you have people who make a living um, from working on the land? Clearly automation is going to mean less human operators. Do you think that's going to have an impact on countries or regions that have traditionally relied upon agriculture for employment? So it's going to start in the developed countries where you're already seeing the labor shortage. So it's going to be used to overcome a labor shortage versus replacing the labor. Mm -hmm. And then by the time it would reach... The, that point, I, I don't think we're going to see robots replace humans anytime soon, as far as that's concerned. What about, and you've mentioned several other technologies in, in a recent article that you did, and I was thinking today about driverless tractors, because um, I don't know how many people may be aware of it. I recently learned that Google has been test driving one of its uh, driverless cars here actually in Austin, where we are. And uh, that to me is um, having recently been struck by a car, a slightly terrifying premise. But if you could test it in a field where it was just reaping corn, I think that might be such a safer alternative. I'm guessing if you can have an automated car drive in Austin, then it can drive anywhere in the world. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... so um there's, there's a significant amount of automation already with tractors, so you can have two vehicles moving at the same time with a single driver, and there's a lot of GPS-controlled um, uh, laying of the seed and, and how the tractors or the grain collectors move. Um, driverless tractors are in the future, as are driverless cars, which will, in hopes of increasing efficiency of roadways and, and whatnot, um, removing a bit of that human factor. Um, but yeah, there's certainly on the horizon for farming as well. And the other thing that driverless tractors bring is the ability to work around the clock. You don't have to have light if you don't have a driver. You can just use the GPS control to do the harvesting around the clock, which again increases the efficiency. What are some of the technologies that might help to increase crop yield? Because yield per acre is going to be such a a key issue as populations grow and, and land dedicated to agriculture continues to decline around the world. There's there's a lot of ways to decrease yield. Do you want to? I mean, there's there's the simple things of you know, 
using the exact right fertilizer, then that's where the big data comes in as far as the drones are concerned. But there's also, there's GMO technology, and I know it gets a, it gets a bad rap, and it's, you know, there's a lot of controversy around it, but using a better understanding of the genetics of plants, irregardless of inserting separate genes, but simply understanding the genetic makeup of plants and then selectively breeding to get better yields. There was a recent a recent study that came out from China where they discovered the gene in rice that controls quality. Um, and so the problem with rice right now is you often have to sacrifice yield for quality. But by understanding the gene that now controls the shape and taste and texture of rice, you'll be able to better breed and eliminate that problem. So so understanding the genetics is going to be a huge thing in the future. Yeah, that's a very good point. And clearly there's another factor as well, because growing rice is very water intensive. Clearly China has a massive population. Rice is a staple there. How are issues such as water scarcity really going to affect these sort of crop yields? And that's where it comes back around to doing more with less. Water is one of the resources that's going to have to be utilized more efficiently worldwide. So we brought up China. China currently has a a food self-sufficiency policy where they don't Mm. import more than 5% of basic grains of rice, corn, um, wheat. But their population is still growing. They have an industrial push inland. And as agriculture is going to continue to have to compete for land and water resources with other sectors of the economy, and that's going to put the food self-sufficiency policy in jeopardy. However, by modernizing their agricultural sector, increasing efficiency, and a substantial biotech GMO push by the Chinese government, they're seeking to do more with less, including water. So, Becca, very interesting to think about the long-term future, which is really kind of where you play on the Stratfor um, analyst team, mm-hmm. uh, because these technologies can take many, many years of research to develop. We're seeing the drone aspect of this coming into play more or less right about now. But what do you see as being the next technology to take off in the ag sector? I think it all sort of builds on itself. The sensors um, will continue to to have an iterative effect where they increase slowly and just sort of stepwise. The automated driverless kind of tractors that that will be you know in the future, and then that then you come up to the 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 become back to the bees, and and that's not just thinking of them as bees, but thinking of them as like miniature robotic swarms that can collect lots of data more efficiently than a drone could. So that would be another another step, you know, 2025-ish time frame. My understanding is that the Harvard researchers that have been heading up the RoboB project uh, really envisioned this as a, a long-term project, but also as a mechanism to help um, natural bees uh, reestablish their foothold in the ecosystem. And this is a stopgap measure that, um, that can be used to help them do that. The interesting thing about these technologies is they don't develop in isolation. We see multiple applications in the sort of defense sphere, uh, space exploration. There's a number of ways in which autonomous systems, especially sort of networked um, remote systems, can be used, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. And the agriculture industry is not going to be the industry pushing this technology. There's a, such a small profit margin, they don't have the money to invest all the time. So they'll be relying on other industries to move forward the technology. So we'll will more than likely see these things impacting the farming sector as price points make it feasible for them to adopt. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, Becca, thank you so much thank for you. taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Before 
Before we leave you today, we'd like to invite our subscribers once again to send us your questions or comments. We'll be sharing some of that feedback on future podcasts and getting analysts to respond to some of the questions we're frequently asked. So if you have feedback to share with this audience, drop us a line at www.stratford.com slash podcast slash feedback. Be sure to give us your full name and an idea of how to pronounce it, as well as the city and country you're writing from. We look forward to hearing from you. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening. And as always, look us up on iTunes for more podcasts. And for in-depth analysis and forecasts on global issues, please visit stratford.com.